This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This episode is brought to you by Liquid IV. Feeling thirsty? You might already be dehydrated. Enter Liquid IV. Behind every great-tasting sip is a science-backed formula of electrolytes and nutrients made to quickly replenish fluids lost from sweat. Every stick is powered by three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink. Redefine the refresh with Liquid IV. Also available in sugar-free. Tear. Pour. Live. More. Visit us at liquidiv.com. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of drug use, drug addiction, and murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Making a clean break and starting over is often easier said than done. While the bonds of human connection can fray over time, the challenge of wriggling free from the ropes of an old relationship is an entirely different beast. It helped toxicologist Kristen Rossum that walking on a razor's edge between success and total ruin had always been her modus operandi. She accepted risk. And for months, she tugged at the knots, tying together her marriage and holding her back from her imagined future. In November 2000, she finally decided to cut the rope. But the choice came to wear every fiber of her being as her single yank toward freedom spun into something far more sinister. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm thrilled to be here to offer Alastair some medical insight into our final installment of the tale of Kristen Rossum, our very toxic toxicology tech. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream Medical Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on Kristen Rossum, a toxicologist living in San Diego, California, who was convicted of murdering her husband, Gregory de Villers, using the powerful drug fentanyl. Last week, we explored Kristen's past and uncovered secrets from her all-American childhood that may have led to her crimes. This week, we'll dive into Kristen's heinous acts, salacious cover-up, and the complicated aftermath that led her to life in prison. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. At 9.22 p.m. on November 6, 2000, the switchboard at San Diego's emergency dispatch lit up. When the operator answered, Kristen Rossum's panicked voice came through. She said her husband Greg had started feeling ill the previous day. At first, he was just sleeping a lot, but now he'd stopped breathing. The dispatcher immediately sent the nearest available paramedics. In the meantime, the 911 operator advised Kristen to place Greg on the floor and perform chest compressions before giving him mouth-to-mouth. While Kristen pretended to heed their advice on the call, it's suspected that she never performed the CPR. She only went through the motions while on the phone, obscuring an ugly truth. She didn't want Greg to wake up. Just one week earlier, 24-year-old Kristen Rossum and 26-year-old Gregory de Villa's marriage teetered on the precipice of divorce. After more than five years together, both were unhappy. The only difference was that Greg wanted to fight for their future. Greg had recently had his fears confirmed. Kristen was having an affair with Dr. Michael Robertson, her boss at the San Diego County Medical Examiner's Office. When Greg questioned Kristen on November 2nd, she requested a trial separation. For Kristen, her relationship with Robertson felt like true love. Though Greg had stood by her as she struggled to get her life together after suffering from a methamphetamine addiction, she now had a blossoming career and a budding romance. But as her relationship with Greg faltered, Kristen's period of recovery now waned. Neighbors in Kristen's apartment complex claimed that she often appeared agitated while coming and going between work. She looked tired and unapproachable. At work, her co-workers also noted that something appeared off with Kristen. While many had whispered of her affair with Robertson, this seemed different. By November 2000, Kristen had relapsed and was once again using methamphetamines. Kristen's sudden relapse unfortunately isn't at odds with the patterns we see in people who suffer from addiction. Speaking in terms of brain chemistry, relapse is so common because people instinctually gravitate towards drugs that compensate for their unique neurochemical imbalances. In other words, an addict chooses a specific drug or drugs in order to self-medicate this imbalance. If we look at Kristen's methamphetamine abuse, for example, and the behavior surrounding it, it becomes clear that she was battling with a deficient dopaminergic system or the brain's pleasure and reward circuitry. 
Relapse makes so much sense because it's an addict's way of attempting to feel chemically balanced or normal. Therefore, it's crucial to treat someone's underlying off-kilter neurochemistry, which makes them want to use in the first place. Without proper care and medical intervention, it's no wonder Kristen continued to use. Many co-workers noticed that Kristen spent long periods away from her desk, standing solo in some of the lab's unique ventilation rooms. They didn't put two and two together at the time, but Kristen likely used there to avoid alerting her colleagues to her addiction. If she was smoking, any smell would be filtered out quickly. Kristen got high nearly every day, even before showing up at work. One day, her boss and lover, Dr. Robertson, found a small stash of her meth hidden in her desk. He quickly tested it, verifying its identity before putting it away where no one would see it. The experience was eye-opening. He'd known of Kristen's previous drug dependency, but it's unlikely he understood the extent of her relapse. In turn, he'd hoped to plan a future with her, wholly uprooting her from the brief period of stability she'd known with her husband, Greg. Though the uprooting didn't come easy. Despite Kristen's request for a trial separation, Greg desperately clung to her. He insisted that they try to make their marriage work. On Saturday, November 4th, 2000, Kristen and Greg spent a tumultuous afternoon in fruitless argument. It seemed Kristen wasn't willing to let the idea of separation go. To salvage the day, they cooked dinner together and began drinking while watching a movie. As the night continued on, Kristen offered to make them both a gin and tonic. At this point, Kristen may have slipped something into Greg's drink. That night, Greg fell into a deep sleep. When he woke the following day, he talked to his brother, Bertrand, over the phone and said he was surprised by the strength of the drinks from the night before. Of course, Bertrand thought nothing of it. As the two spoke of a snowboarding trip they hoped to go on later that year, Bertrand didn't have any reason to believe his brother might be in grave danger. He didn't know it at the time, but that conversation would later be one he mulled over again and again as he tried to understand what unfolded after Greg hung up the phone. That evening, Sunday the 5th, Kristen broached the subject of their separation again, which only resulted in another fight. When Greg turned in for the night, Kristen likely stewed over their heated dispute, ruminating in fear that she was trapped in a marriage she no longer wanted. Her options for escape felt limited. Every time she brought up the split, Greg threatened to reveal her drug use and relationship with Dr. Robertson to her co-workers. If he followed through, Kristen's career and love life might shatter. So Kristen plotted further. As Greg slept, she used a recently purchased secondary cell phone to call Dr. Robertson. According to records, the call only lasted two minutes. We can't be sure what was discussed, but we can presume it informed what Kristen did next. According to a theory later proposed by investigators, 
in the early morning hours of November 6, 2000, 24-year-old Kristen Rossum drugged her husband with clonazepam and oxycodone. Though her delivery method is unknown, its impacts were immediate. By the time Kristen headed to work later that morning, Greg was likely nearing a comatose state, and Kristen was far from done. At work, she upheld the illusion that all was well. She also likely stole several patches of fentanyl from the office. After the brief stop, Kristen returned home around 10 a.m. There, she administered them to an already unconscious Greg. Fentanyl is a powerful pain-killing medication that was first used to help cancer patients manage chronic pain. The transdermal patch administers a drug with a sustained release and is considered a good alternative for patients who are unable to take morphine or other opiates orally. The patch is usually prescribed for analgesia after oral or intravenous opiates have failed, either because of problems swallowing or adverse side effects. The patches work by creating a deposit of fentanyl in the skin, which gets absorbed by fat, eventually seeping into the bloodstream. The first dose of the fentanyl patch usually takes about 24 to 72 hours for the drug to reach optimal concentrations in the blood and often needs adjustments in dosing to reach the desired analgesic effects. These patches work for 72 hours and need to be changed accordingly. As we noted before, Alistair, fentanyl is an incredibly potent opiate and as such has to be used very carefully. This is because painkillers depress or slow the autonomic nervous system, which regulates our involuntary bodily functions like breathing, heart rate, and blood pressure. Kristen most likely opted for fentanyl patches as opposed to another method of delivering opiates because they provide a continuous release of the drug and because they're easy to use. It would have been too difficult for her to keep dosing him orally and any other mechanism would have required extra preparation and work. Put simply, the patches were an easy solution to ensure Greg wouldn't wake up. Greg's breathing rapidly slowed and his vital signs plummeted. Pleased with her work, Kristen went back to work for a couple of hours. Again, she acted unassuming. If it seemed odd that she'd made a short 15-minute trip back home early in the day, no one seemed to take notice of it. Around noon, Kristen returned home once again, likely administering even more doses of fentanyl. She then stopped at a grocery store to pick up a few things, including a single rose, and shuttled back to work. And that wasn't her last trek of the day. She returned home at least two more times before clocking out for the day. Though no one could have suspected what was happening to Gregory de Villers, his boss, did call his landline during the day. He found it strange that Greg hadn't called in sick to work. The absence concerned him, but he quietly hoped his employee would provide a reasonable explanation. However, the radio silence from Greg only persisted. When Kristen returned home for good that evening, Greg likely sat on the precipice of death. Seemingly unmoved by the tragedy unfolding before her eyes, Kristen took a shower and envisioned her future. 
Within a few short days, she would be completely free of her marital obligation. But first, she needed to construct a believable explanation for her husband's death. Up next, Kristen concocts her murder cover-up, and much like her first meeting with Greg, it's straight out of the movies. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hakeman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Throughout the day on November 6th, 2000, 24-year-old Kristen Rossum dosed her semi-conscious husband with lethal amounts of fentanyl. By late evening, 26-year-old Greg Devilla's heart stopped beating. Shortly after, Kristen got to work staging his death. She placed a few strategic props around their San Diego apartment, quietly crafted some lines to feed police, then called 911. When paramedics arrived shortly after 9.23 p.m., they found Kristen in the living room. She looked distraught as she directed them to the bedroom. There, they located Greg on the floor. Upon initial assessment, Greg looked dead. He'd started to turn a sickly shade of blue. Still, the paramedics made efforts to bring him back. They intubated Greg in order to maintain his airway and ensure oxygen went to his lungs. After the intubation was complete, they hooked Greg up to an IV. Once the needle was in, paramedics pushed a saline solution combined with epinephrine and atropine into Greg's arm. The cocktail of medications immediately traveled through Greg's veins and into his heart. 
Epinephrine, which is sometimes referred to as adrenaline, is a stimulating hormone that, among other things, increases the heart's muscle contraction. It induces a faster heart rate, a rise in blood pressure, and an intensified cardiac output that increases blood flow throughout the body. Atropine, on the other hand, works in part by blocking the heart's parasympathetic response, which helps slow heart rate and decreases blood pressure. By inhibiting this parasympathetic activity, atropine increases heart rate through its stimulating effect on the electrical pathways in the atria and ventricles. Epinephrine and atropine have a synergistic effect that would have hopefully stimulated or jump-started Greg's heart. This was a good last-ditch effort to revive him, but given the circumstances, the odds weren't in Greg's favor. Despite their best efforts, the paramedics couldn't get a pulse. Meanwhile, the police had arrived to investigate. Like the emergency health team, they walked into the living room and found Kristen distraught. The officers peeked into the bedroom and saw Kristen's handiwork. In an attempt to stage the scene of a romantically driven suicide, reminiscent of the film American Beauty, Kristen had placed rose petals on the floor. Next to Greg's head was a carefully placed picture of the married couple and Kristen's open journal, which included intimate writings about how unhappy she was in her marriage. The officers asked Kristen what happened. Through tears, she told them that her husband might have overdosed. She said he'd felt sick all day and might have taken cold medicine, along with some old oxycodone and clonazepam that had been kept in the house. She hadn't paid too close of attention. She then recounted her day, revealing that Greg had told her he felt ill when she came home for lunch. She presumed he was groggy from emotional stress or possibly from a lingering hangover. She let her husband sleep, returned to work, and came home to find him resting in the evening. Allegedly, after taking a bath and shower, Kristen saw the setup on the bed and found Greg unresponsive. The officers dutifully noted Kristen's tale of events and weren't initially suspicious. They encountered strange scenarios like this all the time. During this quick interview, the two paramedics prepared to take Greg to the hospital. Even though his pulse wasn't coming back, they weren't going to give up. They loaded him into the ambulance and raced to the hospital. Kristen followed closely behind in a car driven by an officer. Once there, a group of doctors and nurses attempted to resuscitate Greg for 10 minutes. No luck. They noted his time of death as 10.19 p.m. Dr. Michael Robertson had just arrived at the hospital and waited with Kristen as the doctors gave her the news that Greg had passed. The nurse later recalled not only how sad Kristen seemed, but how close she was with Robertson. Shortly after, Kristen contacted her mother, Constance, to inform her of Greg's death. On the phone, she said he'd had an adverse reaction to cough syrup. After getting off the phone with Kristen, Constance spoke to Greg's family to tell them what had happened. They were devastated. Less than an hour later, at 11.30 p.m., Kristen signed paperwork allowing doctors to harvest Greg's organs and other tissues for transplants before his body was to be cremated. 
While this was in line with Greg's wish to be an organ donor, Kristen likely felt a wave of relief as she signed the paperwork. Kristen possibly believed that if Greg's organs were removed and enough tissue was destroyed, it would be hard for a medical examiner to find any evidence of her crime. Organ donation is a great way to help others. However, the deceased aren't always able to donate as many organs as they might have intended. Organs typically harvested include the heart, lungs, liver, kidneys, and pancreas. But without immediate artificial support, organs gradually begin to die, so transplantation needs to happen relatively quickly. Nerve and brain cells, for example, die within minutes after their oxygen supply is stopped, while organs like the pancreas and liver are viable for up to an hour after death. The body's tendons, bones, skin, heart valves, and corneas, though, are eligible for harvest even a day after someone dies without intervening maintenance. Before organs are donated, hospitals also screen them to make sure they're healthy and functioning. This involves a physical examination of the organs, testing for infectious diseases, and a review of the recently deceased person's health records. The Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network, or OPTN, additionally requires an interview with a relevant individual, like a donor's close family member or friend, who can give a social background that may indicate other potential issues. One area explored here is any pertinent travel history, which can give medical experts an idea about potential exposure to specific pathogens. Going back to our story, Alistair, Kristen's mind may have been eased by the fact that Greg's organs were being extracted for donation, given her involvement in his death. They did harvest his eyeballs, and the vitreous fluid found between the lens and retina is a common target in toxicology examinations. However, this potential sigh of relief wouldn't have been justified, as organ donation doesn't actually hinder a medical examiner's ability to perform a thorough and complete autopsy. There's still plenty of material to look at, like blood, urine, and various other tainted tissue samples. Around the same time Kristen signed the paperwork at the hospital, local detectives from the University of California, San Diego, arrived at the apartment to go over the scene of Greg's death. Examining the bedroom, they noted Kristen's diary, the picture of the seemingly happy couple, and a crumpled love letter from Robertson next to the bed. They also noticed the rose petals scattered on the floor. In the kitchen, investigators found an empty bottle of cold medicine and not much else. The scene seemed a little too strange to be real. When Kristen arrived back at the apartment just before midnight, the detectives had questions for her. As the person who'd found the deceased, she became an immediate suspect. And the fact that she'd arrived home with Dr. Michael Robertson in tow didn't help her case. But Kristen didn't seem to show signs of panic as she recounted her marital problems with Greg and brought up her desire for a trial separation. Kristen reiterated what she told the officers earlier. She talked the detectives through her day on November 6th, including a trip home for lunch where Greg seemed sluggish. She repeated that Greg might have taken prescription drugs. She also felt it necessary to highlight Greg's mental state over the past several days. Kristen made it clear that Greg seemed incredibly upset in the wake of her request for a separation. While she didn't outright say suicide, she did 
allude to it. With this knowledge, detectives continued their search of the scene. If Greg had died by suicide, they expected to find a source container for whatever he'd taken. The cough syrup they'd found didn't fit the bill, and they couldn't be certain about Kristen's claims that he might have taken oxycodone and clonazepam. They'd have to wait for a toxicology report. On November 7th, Lloyd Amborn, the operations administrator of the medical examiner's office where Kristen and Robertson worked, got word of Greg's death. Familiar with the rumors about Kristen and Robertson's relationship, he ensured neither would be involved in this toxicology report. Amborn wanted the autopsy and its findings to stay impartial. Following the organ and tissue donation, where parts of Greg's skin and eyes were removed, Greg's body was delivered to San Diego County's medical examiner. At around 3.30 p.m., the autopsy began. There were two major findings. First, Greg's lungs were three times heavier than normal as a result of prolonged congestion and unconsciousness. Second, 550 milliliters of urine filled Greg's bladder. Both findings indicate that Greg had likely been unconscious for hours before his death. The amount of fentanyl in his system would have rendered him unconscious leading up to his passing, and this level of sedation always means that breathing had become impaired. As such, Greg's lungs wouldn't have been opening or expanding fully and wouldn't have been able to adequately aerate. Lung tissue is very sponge-like, and during normal everyday respiration, the opening and closing of the lungs prevents fluid accumulation in these organs. Without adequate aeration, this spongy lung tissue gathers fluid, making the lungs heavy and expansion more difficult. Greg's bladder was full as well, and this was due to the sedating effects of the drugs on the autonomic nervous system. So normal automatic bodily functions, like evacuating one's bladder, are slowed or halted, depending on how much medication the person has in their system. It's also worth noting that opiate analgesics, like fentanyl, often cause urinary retention with heavy dosing because they disrupt the workings of the nerves and muscles involved in urination. However, despite this, if Greg had been awake around lunchtime, as Kristen had claimed, it's unlikely that he would have exhibited these conditions in such a dramatic fashion. Before completing the procedure, the doctor performing the autopsy took tissue, blood, and urine samples to be sent out for a toxicology screen. In normal circumstances, these tests would have been done in the medical examiner's office, but given the sensitivity of the case, the samples were sent to another lab. This was a major development. Kristen knew her office didn't screen corpses for fentanyl, but an outside facility might. And the medical examiner's office wasn't the only group growing suspicious of Kristen. Greg's family struggled to comprehend his death, and Greg's younger brother Jerome didn't buy Kristen's story. Jerome knew Greg would never have taken any dangerous prescription drugs. He also held strong in the belief that Greg wasn't suicidal and had never exhibited signs of self-harm. While Kristen's presence in Greg's life hadn't been completely positive, Greg had a good outlook on life. He'd had plans for the future and hopes for the startup he was working at. Conflicted, 
Jerome called the San Diego detective's office to voice his concerns. After, he contacted the medical examiner's office covering all bases to ensure that Greg's official cause of death was accurate. Jerome wasn't the only one calling authorities. Kristen's co-workers also felt it important to tell investigators of Kristen's relationship with her boss, Dr. Michael Robertson. While they didn't have any first-hand knowledge of the situation, they wanted to make sure that the office affair was documented. Then, investigators contacted the San Diego Police Department Homicide Division and filled them in. With information from the autopsy findings, the calls from co-workers, and the statement from Greg's brother, Detective Laurie Agnew took over the investigation. The first thing she did was request that the medical examiner's office place a hold on Greg's cremation so they could take more samples later if necessary. On November 13th, the lab tests from Greg's autopsy came back. Traces of oxycodone were found, along with unspecified amounts of fentanyl. After the unexpected finding, the samples were retested by additional independent laboratories. They confirmed massive amounts of fentanyl in Greg's system. Detective Agnew and her team were immediately concerned. Fentanyl wasn't nearly as widely available then as it is today. It would have been very difficult for the average person to get their hands on. Since fentanyl is widely known as an extremely lethal medication, it was initially most commonly used in hospices. It was primarily used intravenously as an anesthetic agent, and it wasn't until about the mid-1990s that fentanyl became a popular tool for treating chronic pain with the advent of the patch. Its popularity and efficacy eventually led to different methods of administration, and today in the U.S., fentanyl is a Schedule II controlled substance. Its popularity as an illicit drug has been notable since the 1970s, and in order to help curb this, some regulatory measures have been implemented over the years. For example, many health insurance companies now require pre-certification for fentanyl and impose strict quantity limits. It's certainly possible that Greg could have gotten fentanyl without Kristen's access to the toxicology department, but it's highly unlikely that he'd have procured it legally. Investigators quietly determined that the findings were damning indicators of Kristen's guilt. As an employee for the toxicology department, she could have had relatively easy access to the drugs found in Greg's system. Homicide detective Laurie Agnew called Kristen in for another interview and spent nearly three hours grilling her. Though they didn't mention the toxicology results, Agnew laid out everything else they'd learned about Kristen, including her budding relationship with Dr. Robertson and her history of drug use. At that point, Kristen broke down and admitted she was still using, though she was attempting to quit. The tearful assurance may have humanized Kristen, but authorities didn't exactly view her as a victim. Still, with nothing concrete to charge Kristen with, Detective Agnew let her off the hook that day. Kristen left the room shaken, and in the days and weeks that followed, her life spiraled to a new low. On November 29, 2000, she was placed on administrative leave. 
Neither Kristen nor Michael Robertson knew it, but their boss, Lloyd Amborn, had privately been told of the fentanyl found in Greg's body. In response, Amborn conducted an internal audit of all of the cases that Kristen handled in the medical examiner's office. To arrest Kristen for homicide, officers needed to determine if she'd been stealing, and if so, which drugs. Without her job to distract her, Kristen sunk into the realization that she may never have the successful career and romance that had initially motivated her to kill Greg. It hit especially hard a few weeks later when Kristen and Dr. Robertson were formally fired from the medical examiner's office. Spiraling, Kristen again turned to drug use. Unable to steal from her office, she spent hundreds of dollars in Mexico securing methamphetamine. During this time, authorities worked diligently to secure a search warrant of Kristen's home for the illegal drug use she'd admitted to Detective Agnew. On January 4th, 2001, they had it. Authorities entered Kristen's apartment without warning. She displayed clear signs of being under the influence. Distraught, Kristen pulled Detective Agnew aside and admitted that she had meth in the apartment. While officers rummaged through her things looking for evidence related to Greg's death, Kristen pointed to where she hid her drugs. The officers couldn't charge her with homicide yet, but they could charge her with drug use. Shortly after, the officers took Kristen into custody. She called Robertson from jail, but he refused to help. As it happened, authorities had also executed a search warrant on his home. Nervous, he left Kristen to deal with her own problems. Meanwhile, police at Kristen's home gathered Greg's wallet, files, and the couple's computers, hoping to uncover key evidence. The next day, Kristen was released but her days of freedom were numbered. Up next, Kristen Rossum is brought to justice. Now, back to the story. By late January of 2001, 24-year-old Kristen Rossum found herself under the microscope as San Diego authorities investigated the death of her husband, Gregory de Villers. In the two months since his death, she'd tumbled toward rock bottom. But somehow, Kristen didn't give up hope for a brighter future. That month, she landed a role as an assistant chemist for a small biotech company. Kristen reportedly never disclosed during the interview process that she'd been fired from her last job or been arrested for using narcotics and they certainly had no idea Kristen was the prime suspect in her husband's murder case. So with a new job, Kristen once again attempted to get clean and pursue her dreams. In April of 2001, she moved to a new apartment. She also tried to rekindle passions with her former boss, Dr. Michael Robertson. Knowing it may look bad to investigators, they continued to meet in secret. However, Throughout the month, Robertson seemed to disengage. His firing from his job in the toxicology department left him financially devastated and put his work visa in jeopardy. 
After several months without securing a new job, he had to go back to Australia. Despite months of telling Kristen he wanted to spend the rest of his life with her, Robertson completely abandoned her in May 2001 when he left the country. Though investigators may have thought this looked suspicious, there was little they could do. It seemed likely that Robertson assisted Kristen in poisoning Greg, or at least helped procure the drugs. But the investigation hadn't produced any leads that directly incriminated him. It also seemed unlikely that the Australian government would help extradite Robertson to San Diego if asked. So, authorities continued building their case against Kristen alone. The entire time, Kristen put on a facade at her new office. She perfectly assumed the responsibilities of her role. Her bubbly personality and knowledge shined through her work, and few knew about her dark past. Despite a relapse following Robertson's abandonment, Kristen seemed to be coping rather well. Deep down, though, Kristen must have realized the peace wouldn't last especially since detectives kept scheduling interviews with her. They also continued to pore over Kristen's belongings, finding notes between Kristen and Robertson that solidified their romance and confirmed that Kristen had researched fentanyl before Greg's death. During this time, the results of the medical examiner's audit came back. It revealed that case files Kristen handled while working at the medical examiner's office were missing pieces of evidence, including methamphetamine samples. The office's supply of fentanyl also showed discrepancies in amounts logged versus amounts stocked. These discoveries, in tandem with Greg's toxicology report, meant investigators finally had enough to charge Kristen Rossum with homicide. On June 25, 2001, authorities arrested Kristen on suspicion of murdering Greg. On July 2nd, Kristen arrived in court, where she pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder, and her father asked the judge to grant her bail. The judge denied the request and ordered Kristen to stay in custody. A preliminary hearing was scheduled for July 16th. Over the next several weeks in jail, Kristen was forced to abstain from any illicit drug use. As Kristen sat in jail, her body went through the difficult detox process. Although withdrawal symptoms vary depending on someone's dependency, Kristen's inability to use meth certainly made her incarceration a miserable experience. With nothing to satiate her dopamine imbalance, she would have likely experienced agitation, fatigue, depression, anxiety, and possibly tremors. She may have been unable to sleep and might have had thoughts of self-harm or paranoid hallucinations. For someone like Kristen, the most pressing danger of abruptly stopping methamphetamine would be physically hurting herself or those around her in a fit of distress. Although it must have been agonizing for her, the time in her cell at least kept her from relapsing. Yet, if Kristen looked forward to the possibility of bail once the preliminary hearing began, she'd have to wait longer. To give her defense team more time, the judge postponed the hearing until October 9th, 2001. 
By this point, the case drew massive media attention. The story seemed too good to pass up. A beautiful woman with a troubled past and a new lover. They painted the case tragically, homing in on the rose petals in the bedroom and Kristen's beauty. It wasn't long before some members of the media called the case the American Beauty Murder. Kristen's family retaliated, taking on the news circuit with force. They conducted several interviews with local papers and TV stations. They claimed that Greg was the one who had been spiraling. He had likely killed himself because Kristen had asked for a separation. They portrayed him as a controlling man with emotional instability. While Greg deeply loved Kristen, his actions were greatly exaggerated by Kristen's family, who were just trying to look out for her. It's hard to tell if they genuinely bought into Kristen's versions of events, or if they just wanted to protect her from a life of imprisonment. After more than three months in jail, 24-year-old Kristen finally reached the preliminary hearing where her lawyers did their best to stop the case from heading to trial. This proved difficult. The prosecution had a slew of witnesses and evidence that painted Kristen as a less-than-ideal spouse with a major motive to kill Greg. They mentioned her affair with Robertson, her drug use, and access to the drugs found in Greg's body. After the final day of the preliminary hearing on October 12th, the judge sided with the prosecution, meaning the case would head to trial, but not for several months. A month later, in November 2001, the district attorney dropped consideration of the death penalty, meaning Kristen could get life in prison if found guilty. In a stroke of luck for Kristen, she would see the outside world again. On January 4, 2002, Kristen was released from jail on $1.25 million bail. To afford this, the Rossums tapped into their retirement and put their house up as collateral. Upon release, Kristen eventually moved back into her own apartment and, astonishingly, returned to work. Her new bosses staunchly defended her. To them, she seemed like a model employee and a delightful person. They couldn't believe Kristen would do something so horrible. While Kristen relished the freedom and tried to maintain a sense of normalcy in the interim, the prosecution worked behind the scenes to make sure that their case was airtight. On September 30th, 2002, a paralegal for the prosecution uncovered a key piece of evidence. While going through bank statements, they found the receipt from Kristen's grocery trip the afternoon of Greg's death. Soup, cold medicine, a long-stemmed rose. Concrete evidence that Kristen staged the murder scene. It might as well have been a smoking gun. The homicide trial began on October 15, 2002, to great media fanfare. Kristen's story seemed out of a movie, and it was the prosecution's job to convince a jury that life sometimes can be stranger than fiction. After weeks of testimony, cross-examination, and evidence, on November 12, 2002, the jury arrived at their verdict. Toxicologist Kristen Rossum was guilty 
of first-degree murder. For her crime, the judge would sentence her to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Led away in handcuffs, Kristen's life, once so full of promise, was now inert. Kristen Rossum's story is a tragic fall from grace. From a dedicated young dancer to a callous murderer, the arc of her life is truly sad. This case is particularly upsetting because it highlights what medical and psychological interventions could have done to save her and her late husband, Greg. If her underlying mental health problems had been addressed early on, who knows where she'd be now? She was clearly an intelligent woman, as demonstrated by her achievements in the field of medicine. If only she'd been able to use her smarts to seek recovery or rehab, this tale may have had a very different ending. Today, Kristen remains behind bars in the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. Her former lover, toxicologist Dr. Michael Robertson, still lives in Australia and works as a forensic toxicology consultant. At some point after Kristen's conviction, a single count of conspiracy to commit an act injurious to the public was filed in connection to the murder. But the issue seems to have been quietly dropped. It appears unlikely that Robertson's involvement will ever be settled. Kristen's once bright future has now dwindled beneath the dark cloud of her life sentence. While her efforts to kill Greg were a bold attempt at starting over, it seems the end of her old existence only came with new shackles of imprisonment. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Alistair. For more information on Kristen Rossum, among the many sources we used, we found John Glatt's book, Deadly American Beauty, Beautiful Bride, Dark Secrets, Deadly Love, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Robert Tyler Walker, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and Lauren DeLille, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Music